0: You're listening to WALT, Homegrown, Homemade Radio. When I was a teenager, I used to go to baseball games with my dad at Oriole Park at Camden Yards in Baltimore, and we would sit and we would watch the game, and I used to just marvel at the fact that my dad seemed to know everything there was to know about all of the players on the Orioles. This guy cannot hit breaking balls. This pitcher gets flustered when there's runners in scoring position and he can't throw strikes. This pitcher's going to throw a fourth changeup in a row here because he knows that the batter has just seen three changeups in a row and he's expecting a fastball. So when he throws that fourth changeup, the batter's going to be completely flummoxed and he's going to strike out. Nope, you see that? It just happened. And I would sit there and I would think, how does he know all this? That's so cool. I wish I, wish I could understand what, what's happening on that deep of a level. But I couldn't. And so I would go home and I would read box scores and I would read scouting report books that he had for his fantasy baseball league. And I would just do everything that I could to try to gain access to this cache of understanding that he seemed to have. And I could never get my head around it. So one day, I ended up making this decision that if I couldn't be knowledgeable in the way that he was, maybe my function at these games would be to be really boisterous and come up with fun nicknames and unique cheers for all the players on the Orioles. And I would shout those nicknames and shout those cheers whenever they came up to bat or whenever they got on the pitcher's mound. And that could be, you know, like our bit. My dad could be the guy who knew a bunch of stuff and I would be his wild and crazy son who was just a total delight. (laughs) So one day we go to a game and this pitcher named Fernando Valenzuela is pitching for the Orioles and I have come up with the nickname Nando for him. I know, very, very creative. So we're sitting there and we're watching the game and Fernando Valenzuela's pitching and my dad's telling me all about how good he is at hiding the ball before he releases it so the batter is off balance until the last possible second and I'm nodding and I'm going, "Mm mm-hmm, and then I'm shouting, Nando, Nando, on the mound! And I keep looking around for other fans to take up this cheer and none of them are. (laughs) As a matter of fact, a lot of them are rolling their eyes at me. And eventually, this one group of fans in front of us turns around and this guy goes, will you shut up? And it's really jarring. And at first, I don't know what to say, and my dad doesn't say anything, and it's quiet for like 30 seconds. And then my dad claps his hands, and he goes... Here we go, Nando! And the guy in front of us turns around and rolls his eyes. And my dad looks at me and winks. From WALTFM and PRX, you're listening to Family Ghosts. And I was thinking about that Fernando Valenzuela story because on the show this week we've got two stories about how hard it can be as a young man who wants to connect with older men in your family who are a little inscrutable. There's something deep inside them that you really want to connect with, but you don't really know how to do it. So eventually you realize you've just gotta try something. Or conversely, sometimes you realize that all they want is to connect with you, but they're not really sure how to do it. And so they're behaving in ways that seem inscrutable, but it's just because they don't know what to do. It's a real intention pretzel. But every once in a while, you have a breakthrough. On the show today, you're gonna to hear about two moments like that. First, from Marshall Crook.
1: I started, you know, you know, recommending all these cool action movies and stuff like that. And then finally, Ernie's like, you know, I really just prefer movies where, like, guys and men and women go through serious emotional challenges and my myself them about
2: themselves. <laughs> and then from John Tong. And I was so big, in fact, that the T-shirt didn't fit me anymore. So I was forced to play every baseball game with an exposed midriff.
0: We'll be right back. This first story comes from one of my oldest and dearest friends, Marshall Crook. He told it at an open mic that I used to host here in New York City back in 2013. And as you'll hear, this open mic was in a kind of echoey room and it was not recorded particularly well. But it's always been one of my favorite stories that ever happened. The thing about open mics is that sometimes people go up and They're just working on stuff. And other times people go up and they don't really have a plan and they just end up filling the air in the room with words for five minutes. But every once in a while, somebody gets up there and just speaks from the heart and talks about an experience they've had. And it's really profound. And one night, that's what Marshall did.
2: So this time last year, I
1: wanted to quit my job. Um... I was hating myself and hating everything that I stood for and what I was doing during the day. I was lashing out at my wife and making our our lives pretty uncomfortable. I finally got back into therapy because my therapist decided, you know, I will come out of retirement for you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, um, needing to fix things, needing to to recalibrate and deciding that I fuck concrete and fuck bad smells. I want to go to a place where uh, the color green is real. I decided I'm going to go away by myself for a week and I'm going to go to Maine and I'm going to take my typewriter, I'm going to take lots of alcohol and I'm going to be alone and I'm going to find myself, because that's what you do. Um, (laughs) So I picked a, I had two cabins like, I was going to go in a cabin in the woods literally, so I had the cabin that looked like uh, the evil dead cabin, and I a cabin was like something out of Anna Green Gables, and my wife said, let's, let's go with the Anna Green Gables one. <laughs> <laughs> so I did that. So I rented a car, I drove up to Mount Desert Island Bank, I stayed on the uh, western coast in this little converted barn that had plenty of shingles and a little tower, it right? was great. And I followed the sun, basically, I uh, got up at 5am uh, naturally, and I went to bed about 9.30, I got up at 5am, and I drank all the coffee in America, and I wrote in my tidal for a couple of hours, and I would go on a hike by myself, and then I'd come back and cook for myself, and and I decided that this was the, the process of my day. And I told myself that, you know, cooking, grilling bell peppers was the way to fix myself, and, um... You know, doing barbecue and steaks and reading Kurt Vonnegut and drinking—just just doing a lot of drinking. Um, I made rules for myself. I was like, no pornography and no marijuana, but drinking alone in a cabin in the woods is totally fine. <laughs> it's good to have limits. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> So I, I, stick, I, I stuck with those two. I, I wanted to report on the other one, but it was fine. I wrote a lot of stuff on my typewriter, which I hauled. And eventually, the, the, I did other things. I, you know, I went rock climbing. I went and had a lobster dinner by myself, which was the saddest fucking thing you can ever do. <laughs> because <dinner by> <laughs> they had the white napkins and the this. It's, it's fucking horrible. Um, and so so the week was winding down and the one thing I did is I promised my wife that I would stop off outside uh, Portland where her uncle John has a house that he built for himself um, you know, on this little peninsula. So, I, you know, I, my trip is winding down I'm already feeling lonely. I don't think I've really found myself but I have indulged myself enough that I, I the narcissistic part of myself is feels satiated. So I'm good. Um, and so then I go down to John's house, and it's the most. Here's the thing about John: my, my wife's extended family. They're this really blue blood, you know, rich family from uh, Cape Cod. But John reinvented himself as a teenager as a um, as a rough and tumble biker guy and and you know tough guy Boston guy. And so he taught himself how to build homes. He taught himself architecture. He went to school for because he had to get a certificate to do things like that. Um, but so he built himself with his now ex-girlfriend's beautiful house on the side of, of the ocean in Maine. And I get there and he's folding up this tarp to put on his boat with his best friend Ernie. And here's the thing about John and Ernie. John is a recovering alcoholic uh, from several years. He, he was abusive to his wife and eventually you know, decided he can't do that and he, he went to AA and he's been in AA for decades. and. His uh, best friend, Ernie, is uh, a mass Pike toll collector. Couldn't be more opposite from John's upbringing, but he's also a recovering alcoholic. Um, and the thing about Ernie, if you look at Ernie, his Ernie's face is like somebody broke a bottle and put it in his, his cheek and just turned it like a doorknob. So he just has these, just, <laughs> this intense scarring that you know came from some... Sort of drunken stupor that didn't end well. So I found myself, and then John is is big, you know, bulky, hyper masculine with this just wavy white hair, and I always feel very small around these guys. Um, And they're just, they're fixing things, and I'm just like, yeah, I'll take a corner. So so we ended up hanging out, and you know, we, we go out to dinner. I order a couple drinks. They drink nothing. They talk about their sobriety. I talk about their sobriety with them, and <laughs> and and it's fun, and I'm learning a lot. So when we decide what we're going to do tonight is, is we're going to watch a movie. So we go into the town, and there's this little, this wonderful hipster video store. that's like the ones I used to go to when I was a kid, where everything is is you know you know all the signs are handmade, and everyone has like the recommendations of what you know. You know, Jake likes Robocop. You know, and um, recommends you should check it out. So, um, so I have in my mind these expectations of, or these ideas of what they're going to want to watch. So I start, you know, you know, recommending all these cool action movies and stuff like that. And then finally, Ernie's like, you know, I really just prefer movies where like guys and men and women go through serious emotional challenges and like understand about themselves. <laughs> it's like all right, okay. So I, I, I said, have you ever seen this Paul Thomas Anderson movie, Heart 8? And I was like, they're like, no, let's watch it. So I rent it and we go. We go back to John's house and we go back into the side room where it's very comfortable. There's a bunch of chairs and there's photos of John's daughter all over the wall. And the thing is, John's daughter died two years ago. Uh, she had cystic fibrosis and she passed away. And so he's still dealing with that. So this is, this is the TV room is the little shrine. Where that he has to his daughter in his house, and then the other thing you need to know about Ernie is Ernie's daughter lives in Houston because she's a heroin addict, and she's this she would have been the same age as, as John's daughter, and they were talented friends, and they you know Scarlett died, and and, Jutta and Ernie's daughter went in a different direction. Ernie's daughter calls him periodically just to let her let her know that you know she's okay. So we end up watching this movie about this. Character uh, named Sidney, who has a very paternalistic relationship with uh, uh, John C. Riley and Gwyneth Paltrow. And I'm sitting there, all three of us, with our our feet up, shoes off, our socks on. I'm I'm sitting sandwiched between these two men who have suffered real loss and who have really come to the end of things and then come back and managed to um, do it with a type of serenity and grace that when I thought about the way I was lashing out at the people that I loved and feeling sorry for myself for a stupid thing like being unhappy at work uh, made me feel very small and not just the masculinity thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I actually found that the part of the trip that was the part that I was not looking forward to, the part that I thought that was going to be the, the least enjoyable, which is spending time with my wife's family member actually being the most meaningful, because that was the one where I actually spent time with someone else, two other people, and actually learned something, and I actually figured out that when you spend time alone, you actually don't learn very much. You just wallow in the shit that you already know, and so spending time with two recovering alcoholics, one with a dead daughter and one with a daughter who almost died, um, That was my reset.
0: Was <laughs> <laughs> Family ghosts will continue in a moment. Our next story this week is told by John Tong, who I met when we did a Family Ghosts live show in Washington, D.C. at Union Stage, where they had a much better sound system, as you will hear, and where John told a story that is also about the peculiar ability of baseball to facilitate connection between awkward fathers and sons.
2: Growing up in the 80s, they used to call me a husky boy. But looking back, I realized I was actually ahead of my time. I was in the avant-garde of the childhood obesity epidemic. We didn't know about high fructose corn syrup back then, and there was literally a cartoon about gummy bears on TV. It was a very dangerous time to be a child. And I knew I was overweight because my father was an immigrant from mainland China. And Chinese people are very blunt. And he would ask me self-esteem-boosting questions like, How come you are so fat? (laughs) And uh, because my dad was an immigrant, you know, a lot of things would go over his head. And uh, he wouldn't always say stuff the right way. And he had a very thick accent. And sometimes people would laugh at him. And uh, he's a really proud guy. And he didn't like it when people laughed at him. And so he'd always say to me, you're gonna be 100% American. And so he would never speak Chinese inside the house, and we never celebrated Chinese holidays, and he never, ever talked about his life back in China. And I only got to see him like every other week because my mom had this really good teaching job up in Massachusetts, but he could only get one in New Jersey, so he had to commute. And uh, we only really got to hang out during the summers. And in the summer, when I was nine years old, My dad said to me, you're going to play baseball because you're really fat. (laughs) But the uh, only problem was that uh, neither of us knew anything about baseball. I mean, not the first thing. Like, he took me to a store, and we bought a bat and a ball and a glove, and then we went home, and then he arranged these objects in our front yard, and we just sort of stood there silently, trying to figure out what potential relationship they may have with one another. Before my father finally concluded that baseball was simply sideways golf. Which, for the record, it's absolutely not. And so then I I then put on my glove, and we proceeded to engage in what can only be described as the saddest, clumsiest father-son catch of all time. And the next day, without warning, my father took me to something called skills assessment, which was like tryout for Little League. And uh, if you were nine or older, you could play Little League. But the coaches saw me take three uh, pitches in the batter's box, and they just yelled out, T-shirt league. And T-shirt league was like the minor league of Little League. It was like for the eight and nine-year-old kids that weren't ready for Little League. So the coaches were the pitchers, and they would gently toss the ball at the kids so they get practice hitting. And although I'm sure I was the cutest little sausage roll out on that field, <laughs> due to my aforementioned lack of physical conditioning and experience, and equipped only with the knowledge that baseball had some type of inverse relationship with golf, <laughs> it should not surprise you to learn I was not a good baseball player. And to make matters worse, All of the other kids on the team went to the public school and I went to the private school and I didn't know what the public school kids were gonna be like, but I quickly found out that the public school boys did not share my unbridled enthusiasm for scratch and sniff stickers. (laughs) Meanwhile, my father, a professor of ancient Chinese philosophy, would sit in the bleachers with these salty, ball-busting, working-class dads who probably ragged on him constantly. I mean, my dad had no idea how to fit in. He would wear these like plaid polyester golf pants and a driving cap, so he kind of looked like a Depression-era golf caddy, like the Chinese Bagger Vance. And like, after the games, all the other dads would buy the kids pizza and soda, but my dad would bring tubs of rum raisin ice cream. Yes, that's right, rum raisin ice cream, the official ice cream flavor of assisted living communities. (laughs) But my dad desperately wanted to understand baseball, so he would watch Boston Red Sox games with his nose pressed against the TV, trying to decipher what the hell was going on. And all he could really figure out was there were two important players, Dwight Evans and Roger Clemens. And so he would stand on the periphery of the other dad's conversations and he'd wait for his moment and real confidently he'd go, Dwight Evans. And the other dads would be like, what about him? Dwight Evans is my favorite baseball player. And like that was it. That was his entire extent of his guy talk, you know? And over that summer, all of the other kids were getting better and better at baseball. Because their dads were teaching them things, you know, like how to swing a bat with your eyes open, and how to throw a ball in the general direction you intended, and how not to be overcome with fear if the ball gets hit directly at you. But my dad couldn't teach me any of that stuff. So when I did play, they put me out in the outfield. But mostly my coach told me I had a special job to do. He'd say, John, I need you to go sit on that bench over there so it doesn't fly away. Hold on tight. And so for the rest of that summer, my dad sat up in the bleachers and his son sat on the bench and the two of us endured public humiliation nine innings at a time. But then that October, the Boston Red Sox famously lost the 1986 World Series when their first baseman, Bill Buckner, let a slow moving ground ball roll between his legs. And a palpable depression swept across the entirety of New England. With the exception of one man. My father. Because he now realized he could start a conversation with any other man simply by saying, Oh, Bill Buckner. <laughs> and so, uh, so the next summer, he made me try out for Little League again. And, uh, you know, because he wanted to try out his new material. And, uh, and now, although I was 10 years old, and technically too old for Little League, uh, he, uh, the coaches decided to make a special exception just for me. And so I was now the biggest and uh, oldest kid on the team. And I was so big, in fact, that the T-Shirt League t-shirt, uh, they didn't fit me anymore. So I was forced to play every baseball game with an exposed midriff, <laughs> and uh, that's a total nightmare scenario for a fat boy. And so, uh, and when you're the biggest kid on the team, everyone kind of expects you to be, you know, the best player on the team. But uh, you know, uh, that just made my inevitable failure just a lot more noticeable. So i was sort of like the Babe Ruth of the t-shirt league without all the trappings of talent or success. Uh, But meanwhile, my dad was uh, making a lot of new friends because he knew so much more about baseball. And, uh, you know, he uh, was, I remember one day after a game, I had to wait for him to finish talking to another dad about how Bill Buckner needed to be more like Dwight Evans. And, uh, but after that second season, I knew I was in a lot of trouble because, uh, you know, I knew that my dad was going to make me try out for Little League again, and I knew I wasn't going to make it on a team. And uh, because that winter I had gained more weight as a direct result of the introduction of Cool Ranch Doritos. <laughs> and as the spring pre- progressed, and I got uh, and we got closer and closer to skills assessment. I got more and more worried because I realized you know, baseball is what I did with my dad in the summer and uh, I was going to screw it up. But a couple of weeks before skills assessment, on April Fool's Day, my dad died of a heart attack and because I didn't have anyone to take me to practice anymore, I never played baseball again. And a couple of months later, my mom uh, got a new teaching job in North Carolina. And we moved to one of those small southern towns where uh, there's a railroad track down the middle and all the white folks live in a nice house on one side and all the black folks live in old houses on the other. And for the first time, the other kids really made fun of me for being Chinese, which was weird to me because I thought I was supposed to be 100% American. And uh, a few years after that, when I was 16, my mom started telling me stories about my dad and his life in China. And she told me that he was descended from Chinese aristocracy, and that my grandfather was this massively wealthy landlord. And when my father was 16, he was a colonel in Shinkai-shek's army against Japan. And she told me how he converted to become a Catholic priest after his brother, who was a singer in the Peking opera, died of an appendicitis. And when the communist army was about to invade their town, my grandparents fearing that they were going to execute their only remaining son literally paid my father's weight in gold to get him on the last plane from Beijing to San Francisco. And when my father arrived in America, the United States government granted him asylum because we used to believe in that in this country, you know, that we're a nation of immigrants. And after you got inside, you're not supposed to slam the door shut behind you. You're supposed to hold it open for the next guy. Now, look, I don't know why my dad didn't want me to be too Chinese. Just like I don't really know why I still watch baseball games, considering I never made it out of the T-shirt league. But I do know this. Two months ago, Bill Buckner died. And on TV, they kept rerunning those clips from the 1986 World Series. And I think it's pretty safe to say that when they watched that ground ball go between Bill Buckner's legs, I'm probably the only Red Sox fan you'll ever meet that feels a little happy. John
0: Tong. Ghosts is hosted and produced by me, Sam Dingman. Thanks to this week's storytellers, Marshall Crook and John Tong. Our show art is by Teddy Blanks, and our theme music is by Louis Scara. Family Ghosts is made possible thanks to the generous contributions of the Kindred Spirits, our community of supporters on Patreon. For just $5 a month, Kindred Spirits hear all of our episodes ad-free and they get access to bonus content that's not available anywhere else. We couldn't make Family Ghosts without the kindred spirits. So if you have the means, please consider joining them today at patreon.com slash Ghosts. And if you don't have the means, no worries. Thank you for listening. And please consider supporting the show for free by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. It will take 30 seconds of your life, and it will make a huge difference in the life of family ghosts. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Family Ghosts, where every house is haunted.